This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series. I'm Melinda Pencava. What is it that makes a war just? There are standards which those for or against a particular war will use to bolster their case that a war should or should not be fought. Yale Law professor Stephen Carter says there is a paradox as well, that a strict interpretation of just war theory can propel a nation into wars it shouldn't fight and keep it out of those it should. Stephen Carter spoke about what he called the tragedy of just war theory at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival, and it's that speech we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. Over the past few years, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and U.S. policy in the region have been frequent topics for speeches on Word for Word. We've heard fiasco author Thomas Ricks, CNN's Christiane Amanpour, and Mary Tillman speak about her son, NFL player and Army Ranger Pat Tillman, who was killed by U.S. forces in Afghanistan. The wars being fought today may offer lessons for the future, just as past wars have been references for the just war theory we have today. That theory is one that Stephen Carter will guide us through this hour. Stephen Carter is a professor of law at Yale University, where, among other courses, he teaches a class on just war theory. He was a law clerk for U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall and is the author of several books, both fiction and nonfiction, including The Culture of Disbelief, How Our Legal and Political Cultures Trivialize Religious Devotion, and Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. And here he is, speaking at the Aspen Ideas Festival on July 5th in a speech titled The Tragedy of Just War Theory. Stephen Carter. If you think about it, most of us in America, there's a sense in which we're very uncomfortable with ethics anyway. If you think of ethics as an understanding about how one ought to behave versus how one wants to behave, uh, that the idea of ethics in American life is often very troubling except, of course, when we can use it to hit some political candidate over the head. Uh, we like to use the word then. Uh, other than that, in our own lives, we tend to think of ethics very often as not as important as desire. So let's speak about desire for a moment. Suppose I picked one of you out of the crowd and I desired to kill you, and I did. We would all agree that that was a moral wrong as well as a legal wrong. And now you can imagine we all chose up sides and we began to kill each other just because we didn't like each other. Uh, That would also be, I assume we'd say, moral wrong and a legal wrong. So the question that the ethicist asks is what is it about calling something a war that gives permission for people to choose up sides and start going around and killing each other? Why isn't that also an inexcusable moral and legal wrong? Wrong. That's what the ethics of war, and to a lesser extent, the law of war, tries to uh, get a handle on. One easy way to get into this is to use a hypothetical uh, that was actually it was popularized by a number of writers about the ethics of war in the 1960s, but it actually is a takeoff on a famous hypothetical uh, used by uh, St. Augustine, in, who was in the West... Uh, one of the earliest writers about the difference between just and unjust wars. Augustine posed the following challenge. Suppose that you're walking through the woods one day and a group of bandits set upon you, meaning to steal your money and kill you. Augustine said, if you responded by using force, no one would say you'd done wrong. He also said, if you chose not to use force, If he said, I so love my neighbor that I would rather die than defend myself violently, he said, one could understand that. It might not be the choice everyone would make, but it's not insane. All right. And then Augustine said, suppose now you're walking through the woods and you see someone else being set upon by robbers who mean to kill him and steal his money. He said, if you say, I'm going to intervene and stop the robbers from killing him, no one would think that was odd. But if you say, I'm not going to intervene because I so love my neighbor, Augustine said, that would be odd, and indeed Augustine thought it would be wrong. That is to say, to think of it in modern terms, what he, the point he's trying to make was something like this, that it is perfectly all right to be 
a pacifist in your own defense, if you choose to do so. But it's very different when you're speaking of defending someone else, where the cost of your moral judgment is to sit by and let them die. The reason I begin with that story is because I want to actually jump from the most contested questions about the ethics of war to the most interesting and intriguing question about the ethics of war. Because if you think of that story in our contemporary context, what we're really talking about is the ability of a nation to intervene uh, where its own interests are not at stake to protect someone else. That's what is the hardest question today in just war theory. And the reason that I call my talk, as well as the book I'm writing on this subject, the tragedy of just war theory, is that just war theory has tried to develop an ethics of warfare, but the ethics it has developed would, would have taken seriously tie us so thoroughly in knots that it turns out to be remarkably easy to fight wars one should not fight and often very difficult to fight wars that one should fight. It's a paradox and a tragedy. So to give a couple of examples, uh, to, to see how we got to uh, where we are, let's step back a little bit into a very, very brief history. In the West, what we think of as the tradition of just and unjust war largely came out of the thought of uh, Catholic theologians. Now, some of it I mentioned before began with Augustine. Much of it was refined by Aquinas, and then it was more deeply refined uh, as a result of conflicts in theology that resulted over the conquest of America. It was the conquest of America. Because uh, Aquinas had told the world that in order to go to war, you had to find a fault. The other side had to have done something wrong. That was what led to your right to go to war against them. And what happened in the New World, among other things, was that Spain marched under that banner. That a lot of the work they did in the New World, a lot of the, what one might refer to as the genocidal work that was done in the New World, was done in the name of promoting a better civilization that they were going to either civilize the heathen or rid the Americas of them. And this was seen at the time as being in response to a fault, that these people were not capable of self-governance, they were seen, they were described back home as savage and so on, and therefore force was needed in order to bring justice and peace. That approach greatly upset a number of Catholic theologians who began refining deeply the theory of just an unjust war, until it began to look a lot like modern international law. And indeed, modern international law rests almost entirely on the Catholic theology, interestingly, of just and unjust war. And so, to oversimplify a little bit, they came up with a model which has survived over the years. In order for a war to be just, it has to meet certain criteria. First and foremost, it has to be fought in a just cause. Now, when we debate wars today, that's almost the only one we ever talk about, as though nothing else matters, that if the cause is just, we're done. And if it's not just, then it was a terrible thing, and that's pretty much all we need to know. But there's more than that that was required traditionally by the ethics of war. And remember, the reason you need an ethics is because if you don't have an ethics of war, those practices we call war just are murder. So what else did the ethics as developed by the Catholic Church require? Well, all right, number one, as I said, uh, you need to have a just cause. Second, the war had to be a last resort. Uh, and indeed, uh, Augustine famously described a just, every just war as an act of desperation. You can't think of anything else. There's nothing else left that will achieve the just cause. So... It has to be for a just cause. It has to be a last resort. Third, there has to be a reasonable possibility of success. So in that traditional thought, you can't justify all that killing if you know you're going to lose. Fourth, 
the war has to be declared by a legitimate authority. Now, that fourth one is widely misunderstood today because of our bad habit of reading history through the lens of the narrowing of vocabulary over time. So when they spoke of declared by legitimate authority, that wasn't anything about the particular process. It rather meant you know which side you're fighting for, because it was crucial to just war theory that only countries can fight. So declared by legitimate authority meant there's an actual country versus a band of thugs that is going to war. You know what country you're representing in the battle. That was the idea. Those four parts of just war theory, interestingly, are all incorporated in various nooks and crannies of international law today. There is one more part of Catholic just war theory that has not been incorporated in international law, and this is where all the trouble comes from. The, on, on Catholic just war theory, there was a fifth criterion to make a war just. It had to be fought with a right intention. And the only right intention was the furtherance of justice and the pursuit of peace. If it was fought for any other reason, it was not a just war. When just war theory became secularized by Hugo de Groot in the 16th century and the early 17th century, he intentionally left out that criterion, that right intention idea, because he said, anticipating modern public choice scholars and others, he said countries don't have a will. It's a lot of people together acting for lots of different reasons. No one ever goes to war for one reason only. And perhaps in a sense that was true. That is true. But the advantage that the traditional Catholic just war theory has over the way international law conceptualizes law is that it at least requires the country that is going to fight to articulate its claim in terms of the pursuit of justice and peace. That has to be colorably attached to the purposes of going to war. Now, one result of the secularization of international law has been that nowadays the only thing on which all international lawyers and all war ethicists seem to agree is that it is okay to go to war if somebody attacks you first. Self-defense. Remember from the example I gave you at the beginning of the robbers in the woods that Augustine, at least, thought self-defense was not as high a moral claim as defending someone else. But nowadays, it is, it is defending someone else that is contested and self-defense that seems obviously right. And that's why whenever countries go to war today, they always try to explain why it is that really they're acting in the interest of defending their own people. The claim may be true, it may be false, it may be accurate, it may be attenuated, but that's the claim that's always made. I mentioned that because I, I was here in Aspen uh, to do a Just War seminar uh, a few years ago where we had a seminar that went for several days. And one evening I went to dinner with several of the participants and we talked about uh, Darfur uh, where, as you may know, uh, depending on whose estimates you believe, between half a million and a million and a half uh, people have uh, died uh, in the... Uh, attacks against the ethnic Africans uh, in the South. So we talk, we're talking about Darfur. And uh, we had a very, what was for me a very enlightening uh, conversation. So around the table, there were probably six or seven um, well-to-do, well-educated, very thoughtful, progressive people. There were two issues on which the, my guests that night, uh, two issues on which my guests that night were unanimous. The first issue was that someone ought to do something to stop this. They were very, very clear about that. The second point of unanimity was that someone should not be the United States. That is to say, if it involved actual use of military force, someone else ought to do it. And when I teach just war theory in the classroom, my students often say the same thing, which is why 
in my Just Work courses at Yale, we don't just read theory. We read history, and we also read some of the literature of military science. And there's a reason we read military science literature. And the reason is because if you imagine an actual conflict where people are actually shooting at each other, and you want to stop it, and you want to do it by force, the number of countries in the world that are actually trained and equipped to do so, at least according to what the military experts say, is very small. Anyone guess how small? What is the number of countries in the world that at least military experts say could actually project force into a conflict to separate the warring sides? Four countries in the world. The United States, the UK, Australia, and Israel. That is the entire list. And the reason it's the entire list is that most of the West does not invest enough in uh, defense to have forces that are trained to the level of the forces that those countries are. And therefore, it becomes very hard to share a common battlefield, which is one reason that when you have operations like in Afghanistan, one of the reasons that the forces are actually operating in separate theaters is for exactly that reason. It's very hard for even NATO troops and American troops to share a common battlefield because of different levels of, of training. There are other countries not in the West that are starting to make the kinds of investments in the military that will lead them in the years to come to be able to field forces that way, particularly India. Uh, But we're still a good distance uh, from that time. China is very, very far behind the curve, for example, on this, despite of the size of its armed force. So when you look at a war that's being fought somewhere in the world and you say, someone ought to do something you're talking about a very small list of someones, and that's just a hard fact of life. Paul Ramsey, one of the greatest war theorists of the 20th century, repopularized thinking about the ethics of war in the American Academy in the 1960s during the Vietnam War. Paul Ramsey used to say that one of the costs of being a citizen of the United States is that when it comes to war and the use of force, it is not enough to know what you're against. You have to know what you're for because there are things in the world that no one else can do. And he was writing then, and it's even truer now than it was then. You might decide the things you want the armed forces to do is a very short list, and that's fine. Ramsey wasn't saying, he was not one who thought the U.S. should be the world's policeman. He just thought that responsible citizenship included thinking seriously about that question. Not what do I want my country not to do, but rather what do I want my country uh, to do. I am not suggesting that the only responsible position one can have is that the United States should be going to war in Darfur. That's not my point at all. My point is that once you decide someone ought to do something, your list of potential doers is very small. Now, we can distinguish that activity of war-stopping from the activity of peacekeeping, which is a very different activity. Peacekeeping occurs when the war has at least temporarily stopped. There's some kind of treaty in place, at least an armistice. The sides are, for the moment, not firing at each other. You need someone to put between them, in effect. A lot of people can do that, literally. Over 100 countries in the world can do that. It's just that's a very different problem. And so when people look at Darfur and they say, why hasn't the African Union been able to put troops in the field to stop this? It isn't necessarily because of a lack of will. It's that there is a war going on. There's not a peace to police. There's a war to be stopped. And that's a very, very different thing. Now, the trouble is that we are accustomed to thinking about warfare in what Samantha Power, uh, whose uh, Pulitzer Prize winning book, you remember, was uh, A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide. Samantha Power is fond of saying that uh, even with the best will in the world, America could never fight a war that would benefit entirely someone else because, she says, of the media. She says because of the media. She says if you watch war on television nowadays, there is only one story. And she was writing this long before the Iraq War. And the story is American casualties. There's no other story of interest. There's nothing else reported but how many Americans have died. It is really important to know how many Americans have died. Death is a terrible thing, whether in war or anywhere else. 
Power's point was that's not the only story that exists. The question that people have to confront, she says, is are there causes worth dying in? The complaint that led to her book was that for all that people talk about how terrible genocide is, for all that people say never again, and for all that the Convention on Genocide is mandatory on the parties, it says the parties shall prevent these acts, not they may. Nevertheless, her point is that neither America nor any other Western country has ever entered a war for the purpose of preventing a genocide. And in the afterward to her book, she tells a very interesting story, um, in a way a very poignant story. Uh, she says that when George W. Bush took office very early on, he was handed a memorandum done by some low-level staffer that listed a variety of acts of genocide that had taken place during the Clinton administration. And the staffer's point was, you know, the Clinton administration hadn't done anything about them. And so the story, as Samantha Power tells it, is that President Bush looked at the memo, wrote in big letters, not on my watch, and gave it back, and then proceeded to behave in exactly the same way um, over his tenure of office. Understand, I'm not suggesting that either Bush or Clinton should, must have done things differently. I would rather the United States had not let a million people die uh, in Rwanda, although there also the UN might possibly have been able to stop it. Certainly it's widely agreed by those who studied the conflict that the United States could easily uh, have stopped it, but it wasn't their turf. And so if, if Rwanda was the Clinton administration's failure in that sense, then Darfur is the Bush administration's failure in that sense. And the trouble is the ethics of war, as we discuss them in public life, don't give us a way into those conflicts. We're able to ask if we're threatened. We're able to ask, do we have interests at stake? We're not able to ask, is there someone else being attacked in the woods who we may have an obligation to go and help? Again, my point is we might decide we don't have an such an obligation, but it ought to be a decision. It ought to be a conversation rather than simply letting things slide because they don't impinge upon our consciousness. Now, I also said that the other part of the tragedy of just war thinking today is that it makes it very easy to fight wars we shouldn't fight. And I think this is actually true, that one of the things that's happened in modern just war theory is that it's been reduced, reduced to, to a kind of legalism. So that what you have is you look at a set of criteria about warfare, uh, and you say, well, let's make an argument to, the, to our people, to the UN, to whoever it may be, that we've met each of these criteria, and having hired the lawyer, in effect, and made the argument that the sense is that you're done. Uh, Stanley Harawas, the great uh, uh, Methodist uh, theologian, uh, has said he would rather that people in the United States didn't talk about just and unjust wars uh, anymore, because we don't believe it and we don't live it. Uh, he said it's not a way of testing thinking about war, it's a way of thinking about life. So about thinking when you do and don't get involved in things in life generally. Uh, he said you can't suddenly begin to apply this when a war arises. It has to be a way of considering your place in the world. My own view is that's a little harsh, uh, and it's a little bit unfair. We, that, that ethics guide us when we turn our thoughts to them, and that's therefore. My point simply is that it would be useful to turn our thoughts to the ethics of warfare, a little more often, especially given our place in the world, given the role that America plays in the world, uh, and given the limitations of the rest of the world in doing some of the sorts of things that sometimes we may say have to be done. Yale University law professor Stephen Carter sharing points from a course he teaches at Yale on just war theory. Carter was a Supreme Court law clerk for Thurgood Marshall and is also author of Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby and God's Name in Vain, he spoke at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival, and you're hearing him on Word for Word. That's a short version of the introductory lecture that I give on the first day of my class on uh, the law and ethics of war. Uh, I'm now going to give you a very brief version of the second day's lecture, uh, even briefer than that first one, because that was, that was a 15- or 16-minute version of an hour-long lecture. Uh, now I'm going to give you like a five-minute version of another of the second hour-long uh, lecture. In that first uh, lecture, in a sense, I was talking about the process of deciding to go to war. There exists an entirely separate ethics about the process of fighting a war. And that ethics of fighting a war, 
is also the structure on which modern international law is built. But as you'll see, there are important ways in which they diverge. In the theory of just and unjust wars, in order to fight a war, in order for war to be just, it's not enough that you meet the criteria for a just war. You must also fight the war itself in a just fashion. And principally, although there are some others, principally the idea of fighting in a just fashion consists of two principles. One is called discrimination, and one is called proportionality. Discrimination and proportionality. The principle of proportionality means uh, that you're not supposed to use more force than is necessary to attain your legitimate end. The principle of discrimination means you can't intentionally target anyone but a combatant. They sound like really good principles, and international law says the same thing. In practice, they are enormously difficult to implement. Think for a minute of proportionality. It sounds good. You can't use any more force that is necessary to attain the ends. All right. So imagine you're a commander. You're fighting a just war. It's clear that it's just. And in order to win this battle, which can help you win the war, you've got to take that hill. And you have two different means for taking that hill. You do it through the first means, and 100 of your soldiers will likely die, as will 200 of the enemy. All right? You do it through the second means, and 10 of your soldiers will likely die, and 1,000 of the enemy. Surely every commander would choose the second. That is, every commander would say, I'll choose the means in which 10 of my soldiers die and 1,000 of the enemy. But a lot of just war thinkers, a lot of things about the ethics of war, don't think that comports the principle of proportionality. They think you should use uh, the method that will end up with the fewest net casualties without regard to which side they're on. I'm not saying these critics are right. I'm saying that's the kind of conundrum you get into with what seems like a very simple principle. Well, what about the principle of discrimination, that you can only target non-combatants? George Orwell, uh, in his essay about fighting in the Spanish Civil War, tells a story about one morning uh, when they launch a sneak attack on the fascist uh, side. And uh, he says that it, it's very early morning, it's very misty, and suddenly, in the mist, he finds in his sights in his gun an enemy soldier who apparently has just awakened and is pulling up his trousers as he runs somewhere. Apparently, we don't know if he's running away, running toward the army, we don't know where he's going, but he's running and pulling his trousers at the same time. And Orwell says that my job was to kill him, but I could not. I could not do it, he says, because I realized he was just a scared boy like me, he said. I came to kill fascists, not to kill scared boys. That was what he said. Well, it's a really nice essay. It's a brilliant essay, like most of Orwell's work. But it's not clear that it's right if you're fighting a war. Because if that's right, that suggests you can only kill the enemy when they have their guns in their hands. What if they're asleep? Do you have to check first to make sure? You see? What if they're using latrine, eating food? How far up the chain of command are you a non-combatant? The general back in headquarters? How about the general in the Pentagon? What about the president who gives the general orders? If, if you get involved in the ethics of war, you get enormously complex arguments about all of these things and what counts as a combatant. So what sound like very easy principles are enormously difficult to resolve. I think most of us, most of the time, don't even think about these things. But if you care about the ethics of warfare, I think we have to think about them. Modern international law incorporates those same principles, almost word for word, but outside of a clear intentional targeting of non-combatants in the sense of civilians, almost never enforces them. It is very clear you can't target civilians, but understand the point. The reason you can't target civilians is not because they're civilians, it's because they're not combatants. And so you have to ask the question, who else is not a combatant? I'll tell you somebody who's not a combatant. A prisoner is not a combatant. A prisoner is not a combatant. And so it turns out that both just war and international law have a lot to say about the treatment of prisoners. But you think it's easy, and it's really not. It's really not. Um, so 
So in the third le lecture, we talk about uh, combatants uh, and non-combatants, and we spend the last few minutes talking about prisoners. And I ask my students, and, and so we talk about Iraq war and Guantanamo and, and so on, and they have the views one would expect them to have, perfectly sensible, reasonable views. So view number one, you can't hold those guys indefinitely without any chance to challenge and anything else. Of course, international law says you can, right? International law says if you capture a prisoner of war, you can hold the prisoner of war until the end of the war. Because the purpose of holding a prisoner isn't punishment. The purpose of holding a prisoner is to keep him from becoming a combatant uh, again. And so they say, well, maybe then they're not prisoners of war. Makes sense. Maybe they're not. But then they're not protected by the Geneva Convention. And I'd like to think that they are protected by the Geneva Convention. Then we talk about the Geneva Convention. And we, we all agree in the class, and we can't torture them. And I, you know... And, and like most people, I, I suspect I'm pretty hard line on that. All these borderline things, is that torture? Yes, I pretty much, yeah, it's all. You know, I, 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 I'm, I, my view is very strongly that, um, that wherever captured, the combat, they should be treated as combatants in the Geneva Convention, which means you can't use any kind of, of pressure to get people to talk. Um, but it also means something else. I asked my students, so I said, what would you do if you had these prisoners who had all this information? You have these prisoners, you think they have information and you want to get the information. What would you propose to do to get the information? And so they had all these ideas, you know, well, you tell them, we'll send more letters home or you can get a bigger exercise yard or things like that. The Geneva Convention forbids all of that. That's all a violation of the laws of war. People don't seem to know that. The laws of war say you cannot make any aspect of the condition of confinement turn on whether the prisoner cooperates or not. Nothing. There cannot be any difference in the treatment between the prisoners who cooperate and prisoners who don't. And again, the reason for that is clear because the theory of holding um, combatants is they haven't committed a crime. They just fought on the wrong side. So you're not punishing them. You're just keeping them from returning to the battlefield. So you're supposed to keep them prisoner, just provide for their medical needs and their uh, – uh, provide for their medical needs and also their – um, uh, food and so on. The Geneva Convention does not require you to provide for their religious needs, if you think that's inconsistent, by the way, with your security, it's interestingly um, uh, enough. Um, again, I mention all of that because we don't talk in all of that detail about these things. We have slogans about them. We have ideas about them. But we, we tend in the press of the moment not to fit things into a larger ethical framework, which is why it's good to have a conversation about ethics when you're not talking about any particular war. And that's why the wars that we actually study in my Just War class are all wars that are over, and mostly wars that have been over for at least 100 years. The most recent war we study in detail is World War I. It's true. We study the War of 1812. We study the Peloponnesian War. We study the War of Spanish Succession uh, and a couple of other biggies, um, oldies but goodies, um, you, might, you might say. And I always tease my students with one of my favorite stories from the War of 1812. I mention this because we're talking about prisoners. One of my favorite stories from the War of 1812. You know, during the War of 1812, as you may know, the forces that were involved were very small. Neither side had been able to muster a very large army uh, to fight. So they were very small soldier, uh, armies. Uh, and the British forces were almost entirely mercenary forces, and the American forces were very small. They were drawn from different states and different counties even, and often under very difficult command. There was no unified command structure. There were a lot of problems in the war. So because the forces were so small, they had a problem. What do you do with prisoners? Because no one had enough troops to guard the prisoners. So they came up with this idea. This is, true, this is a true story. True story. This is the idea. They said, well, I'll tell you what. If you're captured and you're taken prisoner, we'll send you home. You go home. You just have to promise not to come back to war again. And, and we, they kept, kept a list. And if you came back, you were supposed to be executed. If you came back, you were supposed to be executed. And, and that was what they dealt with, dealt with prisoners. And uh, so there were people um, who did come back anyway. One of them was later elected president of the United States, as a matter of fact. Um, but there were also people, if you read the histories, this was a great way to avoid service. You know, that the, the militia would march into town. They'd be looking for the able-bodied men uh, to join up. 
they'd grab you and you'd say, oh, sorry, I was captured at uh, the Battle of Lake Champlain. I promised to go home. I can't return to the war. And this, people did this all the time. It was, it was, and it was viewed apparently as perfectly honorable. Some people lied to go back, but it looks like historians say a lot more people lied to stay home. Uh, and so the British prisoners, they were all sent to Canada. They were, they were all sent to, to Canada, and they could just do as they uh, liked and just say, I was captured. Here's my piece of paper saying I was captured and, uh, and sent home. I don't want to say that's a more civilized way of, of doing it, but it's a, it, it's a reminder uh, that the practices we associate with war become more complex um, over time. Now, I want to give you a little corner, a couple minutes of the closing lecture that I give uh, my students uh, which relates the law of war to other things that we do, and I'll take questions or comments that uh, uh, you might have. Um, on the very first day of law school, one of the courses I teach at Yale Law School, I teach, as, you, as I've told you, I teach uh, the law and ethics of war, I teach law and religion, I teach legal ethics, I teach intellectual property, uh, patent and trademark and copyright law, but my favorite course teaches contracts. Uh, I, I, I'm one of these, I, I teach contracts to first-year students, and uh, they're all scared of me, and I think that's great. That's the way it, that's the way it should be. <laughs> I don't want any of my other students to be scared of me. The first-year students, that's okay. Uh, so on the first day of, of class, I, I tell my, stu- my, my, my uh, confused and terrified students, I say, well, spend, you'll spend a lot of time in law school saying something should be against the law or should be illegal or should be outlawed. And I tell them, don't ever say you want to outlaw something for which you're not willing to kill people. And they say, huh? And I say, think about it for a minute. I say, there's a reason the police go armed to enforce the law, because someone might resist. And the resistor turns violent. The state, is, the state by definition, has a monopoly on the use of force. It will kill the resistor to keep the resistor from using violent means to resist the state right back. So if you say you want something to be against the law, bear in mind... It may take a lengthy chain of events, but you're authorizing the state to kill for which side of the road people are required to uh, drive on or whatever else you may do. And I tell them that I'm not some sort of of anti-government anarchist. I'm someone who takes dialogue and reason very, very seriously. And I tell them that because I want them to think carefully and long about what they think should be illegal and shouldn't be allowed and so on. Is it really something they want to lock people up for and shoot them if they resist. And so on the last day of my ethics of war course, I repeat that point, and I tell the students that, and certainly, a fortiori, we should think about war that way. That is, if we should think long and hard with as much time for reasoning as possible about whether to make it illegal to drive on the right instead of the left, we have to think long and hard about going to war, and we have to think about it before the crisis arrives. We have to train ourselves to think about war in an ethical way, the rights and wrongs of it, long before we have to make the decision, because when the crisis arrives, it's too late. When the crisis arrives, it's too late. When the crisis arrives, the decision is going to be made in a couple of days. So at whatever ethics of war we're going to come to believe and accept, we have to ingrain in ourselves by how we think about these issues before there's a crisis, before there's a decision to be made, so that when the decision time comes, we're prepared to reason about it instead of acting out of impulse. And that, in a sense, is the final tragedy of just war theory, that just war thinking takes lots and lots of time. And lots and lots of time is what we don't have. But when we don't have the time, then we act out of impulse. And when the greatest nation, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, acts out of impulse rather than out of reason, the chances are really, really good that we'll make a terrible mistake. Thank you very much. Stephen Carter is a professor of law at Yale University. He spoke July 5th at the Aspen Ideas Festival.
This is Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penkava. This hour, we've been hearing a presentation about just war theory that Stephen Carter gave at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. The Ethics of War is one of the courses he teaches at Yale University. After his speech at Aspen, Stephen Carter took questions from the audience. Megan McArdle from The Atlantic. I have, it seems that we're in a fairly unique situation, at least in the last hundred years, of having an entity or a group of people who, in some sense, consider themselves at war with us when we don't consider us, when there's no state to declare an end to the war. And this, I mean, you know, I think that the debate about Guantanamo and so forth has in a lot of ways devolved into these slogans of, on the other, you know, the Constitution's not a suicide pact against Geneva Convention. But I haven't heard a lot of sort of well-thought-out talk about what do you do in the situation where there is no way to end the war, and yet if you release these people, it is very likely that many of them will go back onto the battlefield and, and try to keep fighting us. Well, you, you raise a really important question, and we do actually get to that in my Just War class, although we save it to the end after we've studied the War of Spanish Succession and all these other wars. Um, there is a conceptual problem um, that... Just war thinking evolved for a world in which states are at war. There's a country versus another country. One of the advantages of being at war with a state, and one of the reasons just war requires it to be a state, is that you know who to negotiate with if you decide you'd rather negotiate. There's somebody who can tell the other side to stop. That's crucial to the model that just war thinking developed on. So if you have a situation where force is not the monopoly of states, where people see themselves making war and are sufficiently diffused from any state control or any hierarchy that you can't negotiate, or you can negotiate with one person, there's still another, would take what you're describing when you think about terrorism, that makes just war thinking all the harder. It makes it extremely difficult. Uh, So I would just return to two principles there. The first one is, You certainly have a right to use force if you are attacked, and you also have the right to use force if to prevent an attack. Well, there's a big debate about how certain you have to be that there's an attack, and we can't have that debate here today, although there's a lot of of writing about it. And the fact that the person acting against you is not a state does not reduce your ability to go after them. That is not the case that if you're attacked by someone who's not a state, it's just a band of bandits. And just war thinkers always thought you had the right to exterminate bandits. There was never any problem uh, about that. Uh, On the other hand, having said all that, that does not settle the question of what happens when you take a captive. And there I think there are good reasons to treat the captives that you take in the war on terror consistently with the Geneva Convention, even though they have not fought consistently with the Geneva Convention. I want to emphasize that. The Geneva Convention, by its terms, applies only to combatants who fight in uniform. That's why spies, for example, are not covered by the Geneva's protections. They, if, if you are spying on behalf of your country in another country, you're taken prisoner, Geneva does not cover you. In fact, there's no international convention that protects you at all in that situation. Uh, nevertheless, I think there are good reasons to say that although those who, as you say, see themselves as being at war with us may not follow the Geneva Convention and also may not be fighting on behalf of the state and therefore you can go after them, I think there's good reason to say nevertheless that when you capture them, you nevertheless will treat them as though they are prisoners of war rather than treating them as some sort of... Um, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a category, I'm blanking the name for the moment, of people who are combatants and not prisoners of war. And traditionally in war, a lot of those combatants were executed on the spot. And that was seen as entirely consistent with international law. Uh, in World War II, for example, it was not uncommon if you found someone fighting out of uniform to execute to summary execution there was seen as entirely consistent with the law and traditions of war. At the, at the moment, there is nothing in the law of war that covers that situation uh, at all. I would not be in favor of summary executions. Um, I do think it's correct that you can go after people who are not uh, states. I, I have two points. Uh, I worked in Darfur in 2004 at the beginning of the conflict and watched basically with horror as the people who were in the IDP camps, who were in the refugee camps on the Chad side, uh, basically reacted with great jubilance at the sight of the African Union peacekeepers coming in, even though there was no peace to keep 
only to find out that after watching the African Union basically take notes and type up reports, after watching people be raped, murdered, slaughtered, uh, they fell back into this sense of hopelessness, this sense that impunity would be something that would, that would be longstanding. And so on your point of nobody wants to do anything, or people say, think something should be done, but they don't want to do it, I feel like both the humanitarian community, which cannot stop conflict but can only ameliorate the suffering, and the AU being backed uh, and then blamed for their lack of competence in, in, in doing it when, when everyone knew they would comp- uh, lack that competency anyway uh, is, is something that, that, I, that I totally agree with. Uh, my second point, though, is that even though all of the reasoning that we have to do around this is so important, I, I, I want to say from my experience there that I hate, in some ways, a world in which people from Bashir's government to Mugabe's government to to whoever can hide behind the laws of national sovereignty and s- completely slaughter their people while we try to figure out how we should do it, what's right, what's wrong. And in all of that time that we're doing, all of that talking, innocent people are being murdered. Well, those, those are two very, very good points. I'll say something very briefly, um, not being able to match your eloquence on them. I'll say something very briefly about, uh, about both of them. Um, on the first point, uh, in a way, that, that, that makes the, the point, that is, what tends to happen when we have a conflict like Darfur is that the Western world brokers repeated peace agreements and announces on the evening news, we've made peace, and then goes on to something else. And, of course, the peace doesn't work because there's no one really to... Um, uh, police uh, uh, to make sure that it does work. That's how we tend to uh, react. And my own view is that there's a point beyond which it becomes a crime. You can't have no nation in the world can solve every conflict in the world. But that doesn't mean you can't solve any conflict uh, in the world. When I, I was teaching my uh, course in Aspen a few years ago, a couple of people in the course said that force never solved anything. And I don't think that's true. I, I force dismantled the Third Reich, and quite deservedly uh, so. And I'm not sure. And people say, well, maybe in 100 years it would have fallen of its own weight. I don't know that that's true. But whether it would have or not, I think it's better that it was dismantled by force well in advance of waiting to see if it lasted uh, a hundred uh, hundred years. Um, on the, uh, the second point, uh, there's an interesting problem here. Uh, if you, uh, you some some of you must have seen um, uh, the Hotel Rwanda uh, movie, uh, where they play that very sad tape of. Uh, uh, they use the tape in the, in the uh, film. There's a scene in there when the refugees, well, the, the, I shouldn't say refugees, the people who are hiding, hoping to survive in the hotel, are listening to the radio and listening to the State Department spokesman, a uh, spokeswoman, um, who keeps saying that acts of genocide uh, may have occurred uh, in Rwanda. And the reason, uh, I think, that American policymakers tend to refer to acts of genocide and not like to use the word genocide is because of a fear that if you use the word genocide, that triggers the mandatory provisions of the Convention on Genocide uh, that was adopted 60 uh, years ago, which is said is mandatory on the parties to take action to prevent uh, genocide if it actually uh, uh, occurs. My main emphasis here, though, is whether one agrees or disagrees that the United States should be involved in Darfur or that the West should be involved in some more directly military way, I would like to see us be able to have actual reasoned conversations about that issue rather than just assuming it's less important than the various other things we may talk about or see in the evening news or, for that matter, debate in our political campaigns. I want to go back to your discussion of uh, uh, non-state combatants who are captured. If I understand you correctly, if we were to follow Geneva Convention, we keep that person until, quote, the war is over. But we have a non-state actor, and the war, as, as I conceive it, will never get over. If we act in accordance with the Geneva Convention, we should keep that guy in there forever. Um, two things. I, I, that's a really important question, and, and I think that question lies behind some of the debate in the, these, over the Supreme Court's uh, recent decision about the status of the prisoners at Guantanamo, at least some of the prisoners at Guantanamo, because this is exactly the problem that I, the Geneva Convention – clearly allows you to keep prisoners of war till the end of the war. No question about that. Okay. Uh, The question then becomes, what if you're fighting a war that doesn't have an obvious stopping point, like the the war on terror? Um, If, as I suggest, you are going to treat the prisoners of war that you capture, you're going to treat the combatants you capture as prisoners of war, that means you can keep them maybe for the rest of their lives. You're right about that. But that, to me, is the reason 
to allow them to challenge their status as combatants, to, make, try to, to, to give them a chance to try to prove they're not. In most of war, you would never do that. It would be absurd, and I really do mean that. If you're fighting a regular war against another sovereign with troops in the field, it would be absurd to give each of those troops, as they're captured on the battlefield, access to legal process. No war's ever been fought that way. No war could be fought that way. But precisely because here the cost of an error is so high. See, if you capture someone on the battlefield, if you think they were a combatant and you're wrong, in a typical war, the war's over in a year or two, they go home anyway. But in the war on terror, if you're wrong and they're not a combatant when you capture them, then you're taking, keeping someone in for their entire lives, potentially, uh, who you may have been mistaken about. And that's the reason to give some sort of process. Now, you could have a debate over whether it should be access to military tribunals, which is what the administration wants to do, and, there's, and, and is sending legislation together to Congress um, uh, on this, but there has to be some kind of opportunity to challenge that status for just that reason. So again, typically in warfare, you don't have an opportunity to challenge that status, um, but I think in this war, um, paradoxically, if you're going to treat them as prisoners of war, you have to have an opportunity to challenge that um, uh, uh, that status. So I recognize the argument that that weakens the ability to fight the war is not an absurd argument. It's not some, something somebody tried to went to torture people. It's not a ridiculous argument, but I don't see a way around it. I think you have to let people um, have access to some process for challenging it since the cost of being captured would otherwise be potentially staying incarcerated the rest of their, the rest of their life. Stephen Carter, author and professor of law at Yale University. He spoke about the ethics of war and about just and unjust wars during a speech July 5th at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival. If you missed part of this hour's speech by Stephen Carter, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and listen to speakers such as Farid Zakaria on the post-American world, Paul Roberts, author of The End of Food, and mountaineer Lincoln Hall about being left for dead on Mount Everest. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Pencava. Word for Word is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.